Recruiting Trailblazers is now brought to you by Recruiter.com, the hiring platform with the world's largest network of recruiters. Recruiter.com helps employers to recruit talent faster with virtual teams of recruiters, AI candidate matching, and now Recruiter.com video. Recruiter.com video can help shorten your average recruiting process by a week so you can slash your time to hire without slashing your quality of hire. Visit video.recruiter.com and enter code RECRUITER1000. That's RECRUITER with a capital R and the number 1000 to access the Recruiter.com video beta program for free. Again, that's video.recruiter.com and enter code RECRUITER1000. And thank you to Recruiter.com for sponsoring this podcast. Coming to you from Silicon Valley, I'm Marcus Edwards and I'm on the hunt for recruiting leaders, producers, innovators and pioneers who've made their mark on the industry and can't wait to share their points of view. We'll tackle the tough topics and dig deep to find the answers you're looking for and some actionable advice you can take to the bank. So stick around and stay tuned and welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers. Okay, so I'd like to welcome this week's guest to Recruiting Trailblazers. Jamie Beaumont is a recruiting technology entrepreneur. He ran his own recruitment agency in graduate recruiting before he founded Offered, a SaaS tool that automates many of the top of the funnel administration tasks. And as if that wasn't enough, he most recently founded another SaaS platform for recruiters called Fuel, which he calls the Klarna for Recruitment, helping agencies get paid 100% of their fees up front whilst allowing their clients to split their payments over six months. By the way, Jamie only graduated in 2012. Welcome to Recruiting Trailblazers, Jamie Beaumont. Thank you for having me. Very excited. Yes, we've been speaking for a couple of weeks now, and I'm excited about talking to you. Um, how are things going in the UK? I know you guys have been in lockdown. Is everything okay? Uh, we're free from yesterday. We're free. So things are going mad. Um, the pubs opened. Uh, there was a uh, outside of Selfridges, there was suddenly a circus. Uh, so I think the, the Brits have decided to, to somewhat let, well, I say let loose. Um, right. Tier, tier two let loose, let's say, in London. So you can go inside a pub because, I mean, that's the most important thing that happens in the UK, obviously. Yeah, the, the only thing that should happen in the UK during December. Uh, so we, yeah, we can go to a pub. Uh, we have to have a substantial meal, which I think the the margin of that starts at a scotch egg. Right. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of pub crawls going on where people go into a pub, have a scotch egg and a pint and then another pint and then leave and go to the next. So it's uh, no, it's, it's good. I mean, you know, November, it's pretty dreary and dark and um, it's not, you know, lockdown during winter. You don't see there's not much light. So it, it went pretty quickly in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, it's not really very different from usual because in the UK, because obviously I'm from the UK, it gets dark at like 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon anyway. And it's usually raining as well. Yeah, we turn see-through for the winter. Um, yeah. There's no vitamin D. There's, you know, we don't go out much. Uh, we turn to red wine and, and booze and hearty meals. And yes. uh, and it's in, it's a lead up to Christmas though. So, you know, a lot, a lot of this, I think, well, most, I, well, I think in, in the States, they go mad quite early as well. But I think I saw in September in some of the supermarkets, you know, Christmas stuff started coming out. So as soon as you're in Q4, that's it. People, yeah. people let loose and, and start counting down the days until Christmas. So it's quite nice. It's, it's festive. Everyone's, you know, there's, you know, va vaccines coming out and everyone's seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And 
I think we're we're starting to see more personality come back instead of okay. um, peril, which is which is great. It's good to see. Yeah, no, London's a great place at Christmas time. I lived in London for the eight years before I came to the US, working in the recruitment industry, and uh, you know, December was always not only is it a great month to go out and sort of have parties. But it's actually a really good month to build clients. And I always used to have my best month in December because everybody just wanted everything to get done and signed and sealed and so they could get off and have a great Christmas. So yeah, it it's, was, a good, it's a good month to do business. It, it was great. For grads, it's, um, it's an interesting one actually for grads because generally speaking, when you're a, you know, a young starter in a business, there's no real better time to start than a couple of weeks before Christmas. Everyone's jovial. Everyone loves what they're doing. Even if they hate what they're doing, they're pretty happy about it because it's Christmas. They go out, they go yeah. to pub lunches. Um, so it's a really good time to start. And then obviously you just have a ton of Jan starters on Jan the 4th, whatever it is. And it's a good month. You know, I- I'm looking forward to obviously I'm moving. So I'm getting out, out of London, but it means that I'll be going into London for work and out of London. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I am looking forward to December. It's, uh, it's a good month for all, I think. Yeah. Well, we're in December. It's the 3rd. It is. Yeah, there we yeah. Go. I think quickly things are going. Yeah. So, Jamie, <laughs> look, mate, I am fascinated with your story because you're already a serial entrepreneur, as I mentioned, and you only graduated in 2012. It's amazing. You know, I want to get into your mindset a little bit. What's driving you so hard? Um, I'm a terrible employee, for starters. Um, I, I, I mean, number one, I'm, I'm quite, I'm, I wouldn't say opinionated in, in, in a in a brash way, I I tend to look at things very very differently from those around me uh, and see gaps in markets, opportunities, and I think what realistically separates an entrepreneur from from somebody else is just actioning that idea. That you know, how many people do you speak to that go, oh, I've got a great idea, we can do this, and we all sit on you know the, the kind of Pandora's box of ideas, but it's it's actually going out there and and executing one, and deciding you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna put put everything on the line here and risk it. Uh, and I've, I've always been around successful people in that respect. I mean, you know, my granddad was outrageously successful. Um, you, you know, my, my, you know, wife's parents are outrageously successful. My, you know, my friends have done really, really well. And are they all recruitment consultants? They're, no, they're not. No. <laughs> um, they're not. I mean, I, I, I went to a, you know, a good university where you know, we were groomed to go to places like PwC and you know, Deloitte and all of these places. And, uh, and you know, I looked at that and thought, I'm actually going to get into re- recruitment. And you know, one of the reasons was is you can actually physically affect your earnings and affect your career progression with just a bit of hard work and grit. And I actually, my first ever job w- was actually at WPP. Uh, and it was all very laissez-faire there. It, it, you know, for me, it just didn't work. And no one actually had the real grit to be like, yeah, I want to get in really early and then stay late because I know if I do this for five years, I'll get to this point. There was no real trajectory there. So I knew in recruitment I could do that. And, and generally speaking, within recruitment, you're your own little entrepreneur, aren't you? You're, you're building your own desk or whatever you're doing. And I just took that one step further and I I just want to be, you know, I love creating things, but I'm also incredibly passionate about making things work and also incredibly stubborn where this has to work. You know, I, I backed this, so this has to work. That's what drives me. Yeah, that's what drives me. Brilliant. Yeah. I've never met anybody who's intentionally got into recruitment. It's just one of those <laughs> things where you sort of stumble into it after university or you do a couple of jobs. 
I actually worked in an advertising agency. No, I, I was selling advertising space, uh, which is different from an advertising agency. It was a you know publication company called yeah. Centaur Communications. And it was on Dean Street above a fantastic pub called The nice. Bathhouse. And I sold space in the back of a magazine called London Restaurant Business. And uh, my boss used to say to me, Marcus, hunt the nose, hunt the nose. <laughs> and, and I said, well, why should I hunt the nose? And she said, because the yeses will follow soon thereafter. And she was right. You know, it's a good grounding. Selling advertising space was actually a good grounding. And then a friend of mine sort of found his way into the recruitment industry, phoned me up and said, guess how much money I made last month? And I said, get me an interview. And so I got an interview at that company called Hunter Skill. Um, went through a few name changes, but yeah, that's how I started. So um, it's interesting because I want to talk to you about a little story that you recently told me. And somebody once said to me, the most successful people in this business are the people who bounce back the fastest from rejection and disappointment. And when we were chatting the other day, you told me this little story about you as a day trader. And something that happened to you, I think, on the E-Trade platform. Can you just sort of tell us that story again? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, back in, I mean, this is over a decade ago now. Uh, my there was a, there was still a it's still there a, a fintech platform called eToro. Uh, and my dad, I I think he bought me he he bought me about fifty pounds of gold. Um, and to those listening, not literally fifty pounds of gold. It's it's you know online bought. You know, fake gold. Fifty quid or fifty pounds. Fifty quid. Oh. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, not not weight, not weight wise. Um, that would have been fantastic. Yeah, that would. Uh, and um, uh, you know, I I put the trade on uh, and it went up, and I, I think I made about six pounds twenty one um, in the space of about eleven hours, uh, and it thrilled me somewhat that. You know, not a lot of money, but if you put ten times in, that was sixty quid. Okay, you know that's that's quite interesting. Uh, so I started putting you know a little bit of money on and a hundred pounds, uh, and then started doing foreign exchange instead of commodities. Uh, and this is you know I didn't work for anyone. This was just I found it incredibly interesting. Started looking at things like Fibonacci scales and all these different type of methodologies and. I remember it was it, all of this is luck. There was you know very little skill involved in it whatsoever. Um, but you know at lunchtime I would be making eight hundred, a thousand pounds by putting a trade on when I thought it was at its lowest. It wasn't. It was nearly there though. Uh, and then when I came back from lunch, it, you know we made that amount of money and I'd sell um, uh, and and vice versa. And I'd just keep going. And it was just a a very very consistent up down up down up down. Um, you know, peaks and troughs, and 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 I made a lot of money. Um, I can't remember the exact figure, but but for you know a twenty, I must have been twenty, twenty-one years old at the time, a, a lot of money um, that I'd started to make, and uh, I, I was pretty complacent. Um, things were going pretty well, and it was all very easy. And I wondered why, uh, when, you know, I wondered why more people weren't doing it. Uh, people said it was hard, but were they stupid? Because you know, this is the easiest thing in the world. So. I put a trade on before I went to bed and, and, and I'd made well into my five figures by that point. Um, Which means uh, how much? Uh, I mean, we're, we're getting on to up to, up to around 20,000. Okay. Um, uh, and I'd, I'd lost bits here and there, you know, whilst you do that as you do, but, but, you know, cumulatively. And um, I, I put a trade on at night uh, and well, I thought it would go up. Um, because I was me, I was complacent and arrogant about it. I'd done well before and not even thought about it. And then when I woke up in the morning, um, 
I realized I, I didn't put a stop loss on and pretty much all of that had disappeared. Over 20 grand? Uh, just, just under, but we're, we're talking, it was a, it was a flat line. Um, Ouch. It, yeah, it was, I, I opened, I was, I was, I was living with my mum during the summer holidays. I opened my laptop uh, to check, to, you know, in my mind, I opened my laptop to check how much money have I made. Uh, and this sinking feeling of seeing the whole pot effectively gone. Um, uh, and I, I remember my mum walked in, gave me a coffee, said, you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. Fine, thanks. Uh, I looked at my laptop and thought, well, I haven't actually lost anything though. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it was, you know, it was for that first moment I saw it was pretty disgusting and, you know, that pit in my stomach. But actually, you know what? It was, it was a bit of fun. I, I, I lost it. I should have given up. It, was, it, it, it taught me a couple of things. Number one, don't be arrogant. Um, things are far more difficult than you think they are. And it's usually if they're going fairly well, um, there's something going wrong at the beginning because you should be learning. Uh, and number two, you know, things don't really matter. Um, lots of things matter to lots of people, but don't take it too seriously. No, no one, you know, no one died. Um, things were things were fun on the journey. Uh, I didn't lose. I, you know, I wasn't bankrupt. I didn't lose everything. I just lost what I'd won, uh, and I was at square one. And I was happy at square one beforehand. So, so five minutes later, you were okay. I was fine. I, I mean, I, I, I generally am I'm quite good at decompartmentalizing, um, you know, somewhat psychopathic in that sense where it's just, oh, okay, that sucked. Um, yeah. Just crack on. I mean, you yeah. know, do something that, that else. That story, I think that story is a great illustration of your mindset. And you have a mindset where you can, you know, make the putt, miss the putt and go on to the next tee box and just hit a, an incredibly straight drive. And it, it's a golfer's mentality. It's the Tiger Woods mentality. Let's call it that. Yeah. I mean, you know, Tiger Woods, you know, he, he said he was um, hypnotized, wasn't he? Whilst he barely remembered playing golf. But, you know, the, the realism is, is that you need to effectively just drain everything from your brain. As soon as something bad happens, sit down, let it go. Uh, because the only person that actually affects is, is yourself. Any, everyone around you, they don't care. Um, so you've just got to let it go. And 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 startups are all and you know startups are all about that the fact that actually you know you're gonna suck at it you, you will that's why that's why people bang on about having fantastic teams because guess what you might be a legend twenty years later having made a unicorn whatever it might be but at that current time you're you're probably actually fairly useless compared to what you think you are and you need a team around you to help prop you up to get you to where you need to be and you you know you'll get yourself there but yeah you need to be able to just let things go. And they, they do also say, they, again, say that behind every sort of overnight success, there are a litany of failures, sometimes up to 10 years of failures before any particular individual became what apparently looked like an overnight success. It, yeah, it's completely true. And actually, there's a story I haven't told you. Um, uh, and this is something uh, I didn't tell you because I'd forgotten about it. And my mother brought this up a couple of days ago. Uh, she's doing a clear out. I'm moving, so boxes everywhere, uh, and a a little a leaflet popped out of of her cupboard. And this leaflet was from I was ten years old, uh, and I decided to start a a car washing business, uh, and I, I called it Squeaky Clean. Uh, and I was so cheeky at ten years old that I had different costings on there. And actually, one of them was I'll wash your car, which is great. That's what you'd expect. 
But the other one was, you have to pay extra for me to rinse the soap off. So <laughs> I was actually upselling, I'll, you know, I'll wipe the soap onto your car, but you know, I'll, only, I'll only wash it off if you give me an extra pound. So, so you had menu items at 10 years old? I had, men- I had menu and items. Else, and how much did it cost to dry the car and then wax the car? <laughs> I, there's a, someone asked me apparently whether I'd do the inside and I laughed at her. Um, so I was, I, I mean, I, I, I've always, you know, this goes back to, you know, what drives me. I think I've always loved doing my own thing and I've always loved the, the, um, the freedom it gives you, but also the lack of freedom it gives you. You're never away from it. And I, I'm not a person who, when people say, I just love to get home, you know, six o'clock and switch off, you know, yeah. it, it never happened, never in a million years, put me on a beach and I'll be trying to do something. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because people like to say, oh, it must be great not to have a boss, but there's a whole different set of problems and mental issues that we all have when we run our own businesses. And I'm sure you're fully aware of those because you have a different kind of a boss and, and your boss is your clients for one thing, they're your boss um, and your desire to succeed. That's your boss. And the discipline that you hold yourself to on a daily basis, that's your boss. Just because you don't have someone looking over your shoulder or perhaps measuring your metrics, um, you still have that sort of degree of accountability, don't you? Massa, and and it's, it's, it's even, you know, it's, it's polarized a thousand times to one because um, if, if you don't hit your metrics at a job, you get sat down, you know, you know you're not, you're not doing it. It's you know, either you do better or we sack you, but what we'll do is we'll try and, you know, train you and help you get to where you want to be. Uh, and you can slack off even if you're doing well and, and not be found in large businesses in, in startups, you know, you're absolutely right. So, you know, depend what startup you're in, but your boss is, um, your investors, um, absolutely your customers, your customers are, um, either your biggest um, franchises and, and support mechanisms or your biggest critics and potentially your biggest downfall. Um, you know, you have family relying, you know, I have a wife who's sitting here, you know, if, I, if this doesn't go well, it's not just me that I disappoint. I don't just go get another job. I put everything into this, all my savings, debt, ev- everything I possibly can. I don't just go get another job. I lose, I, I lose pretty much everything. And that's, you know, the thought of doing that when you wake up in the morning of going, I might just have you know, half a day off today. Well, that's fine. But if you put everything into it, then you're going to find yourself in a very sticky situation further down the line. So you yeah. are, you're more, you're more accountable. And, at, you know, when you want something to work, if you get an email at 11 o'clock at night, well, <laughs> answer the email. If that person's awake, you need to be too. Um, so it, it's, it, 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 it is, everyone's got, everyone's got issues in whatever walk of life, but I feel like when you're at a startup, they're somewhat polarized because everything you do correlates to either success or failure. And one of them is really, really bad. And one of them is really, really good. But there's no real gray area in between. Yeah. And we're going to get into a little bit about why you've started two companies already in a while. But something I really wanted to ask you was about your LinkedIn presence, because that's how I found you. I was linked to somebody that you're linked to, and that's how it all happens. And you produce a ton of content. And I think you do it extremely well, much better than I do. Let's talk about your strategy for posting on LinkedIn and and maybe some of your most popular posts, because you're also pretty controversial on LinkedIn as well. (laughs) You don't post vanilla content at all. You actually walk the line between well, vanilla content and extremely controversial content. So let's talk about that for a second. What is your strategy? Um, I think firstly is don't sell. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, 
interested. I always, I mean, if you've looked at some of my posts, I, I say I'm a shit salesman. Um, and, and I am, I've given stuff away for free. I've, you know, I've done everything that if I had a sales director, he would have fired me by now. Um, uh, and, and I, I actually don't believe, I think when, you know, when, when you're an entrepreneur, when, when you're a founder, when you're in a startup, your journey and, you, you know, you as a person is, is what people buy into. Certainly, certainly not the product. If the product's any good, then, then they'll find it. Uh, so I don't like selling. I like, um, I like splitting audiences. Uh, I'm very much a person that if you don't like me, I really don't care. Um, you know, fine. If I, if my post upset you, um, or if it offended you, you have your absolute right to be offended, but, uh, you know, you can also scroll past, you know, it's gone quite well. And, and I think I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, I, I believe in fairy tales in, in business. I'm very much a realist. Uh, and I like to drum that down as, as much as possible and, and have a bit of fun with it as well. You know, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you do. You have a ton of fun with it. In fact, I'm looking at one of your posts right now and you've done a ton of really good fun posts. And, and it just, it's when you look at it and read your posts, I sort of think to myself, well, this is what I need to be doing because it, it's suddenly <laughs> very obvious because you tell nice little stories and you, you put these factoids out there. You, this one particular says, 13 lies recruiters tell daily. Okay. So number one is top performers earn six figures in their first year, which we all know is bullshit, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Uh, number two is sorry. She's just in a meeting, which is obviously a classic. Um, I'll keep you in mind for future opportunities. Ah, uh, that's a good one. That comes at the end of almost every sentence that a recruiter says, right? Um, no, he's not interviewing anywhere else. <laughs> that's a good one too. Keep exclusive. Yeah. Um, we don't work with anyone under 20%. That's funny as well. Oh my God. Yeah. It's outrageous. But, but so what's your strategy behind this? Well, two things. I mean, let's talk strategy and tactics. How do you come up with the content? And a lot of your posts are lists of things that you should or shouldn't do. And they're mostly quite funny. And as I said, sometimes controversial, but do you actually have a strategy behind this? Do you plan this? Do you execute on a regular basis? Yeah. So consistency, first of all, is, is really, really key. No one wants to see somebody who, you know, dips their toes in now and now and again. Um, so it's really important to be consistent. I have a minimum of three posts uh, a week that go out. Um, and I suppose strategy wise is, is be become familiar to your audience in terms of your actual posting and and what you know where people look at my posts and where uh in a sense I'm taking the piss out of recruiters in in that post but the biggest engagement I have with that post is recruiters laughing at it because we know you know we all know I mean I, I you know some of these things most of them I you know I fell for my first recruitment role because I was told I'd make 120 grand in my first year so number one yeah I, I was the sucker of, of that one, listen to it, went in. Um, I, you know, number two, I've said the rest of them. And, and number three, I've heard all of them. And, and recruiters like laughing at themselves at the moment. Um, you know, it's, it's an industry that's had a pretty turbulent time this year. Uh, and so make, make sure that, you know, when you're telling a story, you know, you, you want to think of your audience, who you're actually trying to attract. If you're alienating them, you're going too far. Um, if your content doesn't really engage with them, then you're not going far enough. And so, I want to I want to have a little bit of fun and 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 look at people's weaknesses and and look at the reason um you know when I was in when I was in recruitment 
I, you know, I sat, I was at a dinner party, sat next to someone who didn't know I was in recruitment and said the two worst people in life are estate agents and recruiters. Uh, and I was like, well, tick, here I am. Um, and well, that's because the barrier to entry for both of so those low. professions is so incredibly low. It's basically a mobile phone and a LinkedIn profile. It, it, yeah, it's that, it's that, that's it. Um, and it used to not even be a LinkedIn profile. It used to be the yellow pages and, you know, uh, and, yeah. and a mobile phone and that was it. And, and off you go, get some clients and just hound people as much as you possibly can. So I think, you know, just be consistent, engage um, and and divide. Uh, you know, we we in life want to be very inclusive and I'm a very inclusive, but I believe inclusivity. Uh, I think we should make sure that in life in general, that, that we allow people to, to come in on things. But when you're making content and you really, really want to see who your customers are, divide and conquer, you know, make sure that those who don't like you you know and if they if they write on your linkedin because they don't like you then they're creating more engagement for yourself fantastic thank you very much and and let the others um engage too and and then i think lastly it's just i mean it was another post i wrote about um the top sales techniques uh and give us some examples so the 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 reason i wrote about sales techniques is i see so many sales trainers online now you know posting about how you should be doing this how you know one person says cold calling is dead the other person says cold calling is the best thing in the world. The other person says never do cold email marketing. The next person shows they've made a hundred grand that month with cold email marketing. So actually, you know, no one knows what they're talking about. So I started saying, you know, the top, you know, I think it was top six sales um, techniques to to help you grow your pipeline. You know, number one is um, stalk your, you know, physically stalk uh, your prospects' routine, stand right. outside of their windows and watch what they do. <laughs> Um, you know, number two is date their spouse, um, really get intimate and find out what they really like. And it's just, you know, stupid things that just for fun, that just for fun. And, and it's and it's poking fun at the experts online that everyone thinks they are. And and because there are so many of them out there uh, and people see them all the time, people look at that content and think, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I've seen five sales experts. And oh, what about and, and people get involved. People start writing they're, you know, number seven and then number eight. And, and we, and you get people, you know, actually engaging and writing their own content on your content. And it's fun, you know, it's fun engaging. And I've won lots of business from, from, you know, somebody just having a bit of a joke on my, you know, on my LinkedIn feed. What do you mean by one lots of business? So, so my, my, I have two targets. I have recruiters, I have SMEs, uh, and I post about both of them, generally speaking, but round one, you know, centralized topic, which is hiring. Uh, and they can all relate to that depending on what side of the fence they're on. Um, and so I have, you know, I have people write on my posts and, um, and then they actively add me and message me saying, really like your content. Uh, and then I message back going, hey, I, actually, I know your business. That's really cool. You know, how are you finding it? Yeah, finding it really well. Okay, great. Well, should we have a chat? Because yeah. actually, I think what I do can help you. Yeah, I was thinking that actually. Yeah, can we get something in the diary? And ta-da, it was free. I had a bit of fun doing it. I didn't have to cold call someone or, or you know, email market someone. It was all very natural in that respect. And, and that's what that's LinkedIn amazing. does. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not so much a content strategy as a bona fide sales strategy that you're executing here. And to, to what extent does that replace traditional sales methods that you might have to use instead? Or, or do you, in fact, use those in conjunction with this particular strategy? Yeah, I, I absolutely. Um, I do use them. So I'm a big fan of multi-channel. Um, so, I, so as 
and until you know uh you know i was a one-man band for a very very long time and you have to make sacrifices to figure out actually where your time is best spent and you know my time was spent a lot of the time at the start cold calling and i realized that the hit rate was so low that i'd spend my days doing nothing but cold calling and eventually you know i wouldn't do any of the other stuff i needed to do so linkedin replaces a large part of those manual processes that you'd have to do that would be fine if you had a team but because you don't it's very very difficult um so i, I generally I, I love email i think it's great um i i actually had an email campaign went out last week i've got a hundred percent open rate um on those on those emails whether people reply or not how many people did thing. you send to to get a hundred percent uh, just, 100, just me. 140, yeah, 140 <laughs> people. Wow. Um, so, and that was just, you know, that was for fuel that we'll talk about soon, but that, you know, that was just, um, you know, a, a, a good subject line that, that intrigued people. Um, and, and yeah, so I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a key metric of how many posts you're putting out, how many people you're connecting with, how many emails you're sending out and how many phone calls you're making and how many meetings are you booking right. and all of those together form a very good, um, I suppose they call it a sales stack these days, don't they? You know, that a very good strategy, which means that either works or it doesn't. It, it might be terrible for someone, but for myself, it's working. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I'm hearing more and more about a cold emailing and how it's making a huge comeback. If you do it professionally and correctly and use the right tools and, and leverage segmentation and really understand your audience so it feels like you're really speaking to them, um, in fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going, I think I told you, I'm going to be interviewing the CEO of Lemlist, which is an incredibly popular mm -hmm. cold emailing tool that's doing extremely well right now. So where does LinkedIn rank in your sort of list of growth hacks that give you the most bang for your buck? And where does cold emailing rank? So for one of my businesses, it's top. Yep. Uh, LinkedIn is top. And for one of my businesses, cold emailing is, is top. Uh, and I think that's to do with the, the target market that you're going after the uniqueness of the product that you have um, and, and generally the messaging that, that you've got as well. I mean, it, it can all go very wrong very, very quickly. I, I got approached through a, a cold email from a recruiter two days ago. Um, now, this is, you know, don't forget, I, I have two businesses at the moment. I've always had my businesses. I've not yep. actually been in recruitment for a few years. Um, uh, she sent me a message saying, oh, you know, I've got a few roles. Are you looking to get into something new? It's well. <laughs> I've just taken on, you know, another investment round. My investors would probably be fairly pissed off if <laughs> that's the if least I, of your worries. Yeah, yeah. But I buggered off and went into, uh, you know, a recruitment role, which isn't what I'm trying to get into at the moment. So that, you know, for her, you know, went down like a lead balloon. Mm -hmm. um, but you could get it so right, and if you just target, and like you said, Lemlist is great. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. You can you can do lots of things with pictures and videos, and and it's just slightly more unique than just an HTML text based, um, you know, email with OPS. Oh, if you don't want to hear from me, just you know, un click this link to unsubscribe. It just feels so um, robotic and cold, and and there's no familiarity or person, you know, personality within it. Which tool do you use, Jamie? I so I use reply.io um and for me that works really well because reply actually integrates with linkedin um so it's got a chrome extension that means you can email someone from linkedin straight away so you can see on that profile get their email then send a personalized email to them um and and that works and linkedin doesn't mind 
uh, if they hear this and they do mind, I'll probably know about right. it. Um, I'll get an email back from it. But no, I don't think they do. I think LinkedIn have a, a, you know, a lot of Chrome extensions that allows you to to find people's data, emails, phone numbers. Yeah. Um, you know, they, there's there's lots of them out there now, but that that fits really nicely into my sales stack because LinkedIn first, email second, and if I can combine them in one tool, then then you know that works really well for me. Yeah, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, which is the thin line that people are treading between automation and personalization. Because I'm a big fan of personalization. I'm much more of a sniper recruiter than I am a sort of you know send out a hundred emails and hope for the best recruiter. Um, but I believe there is. The lines are getting blurred, okay? And tools like Lemlist are allowing you to construct, as long as you've got a segmented and tight prospect list, they're allowing you, these tools, to, to write what looks like uh, extremely personal emails. So what, by the way, you mentioned your subject line that got 100% of those people to open your email. What was that? Well, I mean, that was just introducing the Klarna of recruitment. Um, uh, and that was really simple. But I've had other ones that have done really well where I've had... Uh, and this is for you know uh, our the, the tool offered, um, and it would just be why don't you get fuck and then you know f u yeah. dot 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 dot. Uh, and obviously someone's thinking, is he telling me to get fucked on email? You like this random person and open it up, and it's why don't you get fun, energetic graduates into you know, into roles within your business? And uh, and you know I've had a lot of people come back going funny, very very funny. No, we're not we're not looking, but um, good you know good email subject line. So. It, it works really well. I think with with Lemlist, with Reply, and with automation, automations. You're right. It's it's a really interesting topic, and um, automation within recruitment can be complete suicide because it's a people business. And you know, as soon as you, it's like calling up customer service and getting through to a you know a robot. No one wants that. No. People want to speak to someone. Um, and if you call yourself a recruiter, uh, and you know you're only automated. Um, it's going to be a very short career. So I think it's the the work that's done before the email that actually determines whether or not that email is personalized or whether it's a cold email. So when you talked about segmenting, you know, users and businesses, you know, you can have a thousand pieces of data, a bad recruiter or a bad salesperson will take that thousand, stick it into an email um, automation system, same message out to everybody and just, you know, hope for the best to see what comes out a good recruiter or salesperson will look at those thousand businesses and decide okay out of those thousand who are my number one top targets what industries are you know what current clients do i have that are competitors that we can go to and say yeah we're working with this person um what you know who who do i know from this list that i can actually send personalized emails to and actually do a little bit of work before you actually get the emails out because if you want to take your hit rate from one percent to ten percent all it could be is, you know, three, four, five hours work that mean that, you know, you bridge that gap. And I, I think that really is the difference between automation now and, and, you know, successfully automating. Absolutely. The difference in getting your email opened and replied to is you have to talk to your audience. Your audience has to feel like they're being directly spoken to, even if it is an automated email. And even if it is a templated email, as you just said, if you segment correctly, you can speak directly to them and who their competitors are and the exact type of service that you could offer. Mm. And even if they realize that, in fact, this is a template, it can still be speaking to them and still encourage them to respond. So I think you're right. You've got to do the work and you've really got to find ways to speak directly 
to the segment of your prospects that you're reaching out to. And if you just go for a full on like mail shot to a thousand people and hope for the best, oh. your response rate is going to be incredibly low. It's low and it's, it, it's, it's what, actually it's what annoys people. It's where, it's where email probably took a nosedive, you know, a couple of years ago where all these automation tools came out and, and their own processes probably weren't great. And, and people just decided, cool, you know, I'm going to buy some data off a service provider, take 10,000 pieces of data, send 10,000 emails, yeah. win five rolls from those 10,000 emails and, uh, and, and happy days. But, but that annoys, you know, 9,995 people yep. who then get another cold email that might be personalized, but they're fed up. You know, they don't want to see it. So they press delete before they even open it. Um, so, you know, I think if we're going to get back to, you know, recruiters having an established name within a market and, and becoming an expert, by the way, that's an, you know, I said it before with, you know, sales experts and with this expert is something that people call themselves when they've not really done the work to, to become one. Um, you know, if you're going to do your work, you always think to yourself, God, that recruiter, you know, he's so good. He works so, so hard. It's like, well, the working so hard part is that's the bit that we all should be focusing on. They put the effort in there. You know, they actually do the hours. They do that. You know, they sharpen the axe before they send that email. Um, so it's 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 great. It's definitely you're right. It's definitely coming back. Um, but I think there's still there's still some work to be done. There's a great saying, isn't there, which goes something like, "If you give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend four hours sharpening my axe." Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. That's the sort of the essence behind what we're talking about here. And on the podcast, we've been talking a lot about automation, uh, personalization and powerful messaging. And in fact, I'm really excited because next week I'm going to be interviewing somebody that I've been following for ages that I admire greatly. And his name is Mitch Sullivan and he's in the UK. Do you know Mitch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's a bit of a cult hero. Yeah, in recruitment. So excited. Um, yeah, his 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 book and his uh, his LinkedIn photo used to be kind of half of his face, That's right. didn't it? Yeah. Um, his book is called On Recruitment, and I have a copy yeah. of it here on my desk. Um, and I actually had a call with him yesterday, a video call. Oh, and did you? I showed him the the book, and we're going to have a nice chat next week and talk about some of the exciting things that he's getting up to over the next year or so. So really excited. And if you're not following Mitch Sullivan, then give him a follow on LinkedIn because he is he is the real deal and he's very yeah. interesting. And he knows what he doesn't know about copywriting is not worth knowing. And so what he's teaching people now is how to deliver powerful messaging, not just in job ads, but how to use the same powerful messaging to reach out to anybody, to reach out to potential mm -hmm. clients, to reach out to potential candidates and employ the, the, the strategy of attention, interest, desire and action instead of sort of just going in for the kill with one email, you know, developing a strategy over a series of emails that allows you to get, allows your prospect to, to get to know you a little bit. And then eventually, and, and, you know, having increasing calls to action throughout this sequence of emails. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's what he's what he's done. He's done incredibly well, yeah. Uh, and he's yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, a, a strong, powerful message um, with and, and what you know what he teaches not just one but plenty of them. Yeah, uh, you know, and you you start to have you know very very good success rate, and and that is what I'm trying to do effectively is keep that message on point every yeah. single time I speak. Um, and as, as soon as it, that wanes and it goes, then, you know, I have to revisit that strategy. Clearly, it's not just no. about the tool. It's funny because 
We are like well over halfway. Goodness me. We're 39 minutes into this podcast and we still haven't talked about your companies. So, and I, look, I didn't want to make this a podcast just for you to sit there and tell me how great your companies are. That's not the point, but I'm very interested in both of these organizations. So the first one that you started was called Offered, which is O-F-F-E-R-D. Yes. That's the one. Obviously because offered with the E was not available, right? Uh, it's just not tech, is it? No. Um, you've got to take out a vowel right, uh, of in, course. in tech. It's all about, it's all about spelling things wrong and looking cool. Are you a .com or a .io or a .io? Or, or, or Silly me. Yes. Well done. <laughs> offered with an apostrophe somewhere in it, .io. That's the one. So let's break it down a little bit. The whole story behind Offered is that it's a top of the funnel sort of administration automation tool, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. We built a product that solves uh, the issues within the, the top of the funnel recruitment process. You know, as a recruiter, you know, two hours worth of manual screening activity given to you in about 60 seconds. And as a candidate, your ability to get your foot through the door and actually apply and interview for a role within one process, meaning you can capture anyone. The, the idea was that any candidate can interview with any business and any location at any time in the world inside of one platform. And, and that's that's what we've built today. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a really nifty, nifty tool. Where does it sit inside an agency or inside an in-house recruiting organization? Um, so we, I, I actually initially built it for in-house um, talent teams. So not within agencies. Uh, and what we realized, uh, and this is another thing I'll, you know, can kind of go into when you bring a product to market is, you know, you're not the smartest person in the market your customers are. Uh, and what we realized actually agencies were were the ones that really desperately wanted something like this. It was it was meant for volume, you know, volume hires at the top of the funnel, as you said. And and actually there's there's not there's no better example of someone doing volume hiring over and over and over again at the top of the funnel than there is as a recruitment consultant. Um so it's 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 ended up now we've got a bunch of agencies who who really love using it and we're starting to now onboard more and more internal talent teams as well. So it seems to be something that works on, on both sides. Now, does that replace existing tool sets or does it coexist with a tech stack that's already in place? Um, I suppose it depends on the size of the business. For for small businesses, we can completely um, you know, take over their entire process. You know, We have a CRM built into this and an ATS system and video and voice and um, calendar integrations and notification messaging and for larger businesses, we can sit right on that slitter at the top of the funnel that 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 helps consultants use their time more wisely. So instead of 10 hours of of screening, they can have five minutes and make a better decision as to right which one of those candidates that have come through our process do we really like? We like those three. Right. I'm gonna spend my time with those three and one of those three are gonna get the job. But then you have to have a list of candidates that's willing to be subject to an automated interviewing process. So if I apply, yeah, then it asks me if I want to interview for the role. And then I presume it's an automated interview process. Yeah. So, so the, the kind of foot through the door is automated. So what we like to do is say, don't use this as your interviewing process. Use this as your screening process where they can get their foot through the door and do that first kind of half stage interview, let's say, right at the start, which which means that everyone can do it conveniently wherever they are. They can express more about themselves, but there has to be human contact within this process. We will not advocate for the replacement of humans and, and people within recruitment with software. For me, that's why AI in recruitment, I hate it. I don't believe it works. I think if a, if a robot's making the, a decision 
over a person, something's going wrong in that process. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, robotic process automation is difficult to say. And it's also, it's meant for repeatable administration tasks. It's not meant to replace human beings because that's why recruitment is still relevant today because it's the ability of you as the recruiter or me as the recruiter to influence a mutually beneficial outcome for the candidate or the client, right? Exactly. And it's, it's you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't let a robot make a genuine life decision for you. You just wouldn't do that, especially if it had a very minimal amount of information about you. And that information was built off an algorithm that is tested and learned on millions of other people who are completely different to you. So, uh, you know, I, I don't believe it's right. And, and, and we, you know, we want to, we essentially want to automate the way in which it makes uh, interviewing processes more accessible. If, if you really struggle getting a job and it's because you just can't get your foot through the door and you really think, and, and this is in, in my time in recruitment, I learned this a lot about candidates is a lot of the time they just can't get their foot through the door. And when they do, they really do shine, but it's just getting themselves into the office that, that they really need to do. And, and, and what this software does is just gets them there, gets them in front of a consultant or an in-house talent team when they wouldn't usually have got there based on their CV. Um, and, and, and that's, that's what, you know, that, that's the mission. No, I get it. Um, let me ask you a tough question. Do you think you guys with Offered, and we're going to move on to fuel in a minute, but with mm. Offered, do you think that you've maybe tried to solve too many problems in one go? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Offered was my first, um, foray into technology. Uh, and you have an idea in your head of the process you want to solve. And actually, uh, I, I'm very lucky with the developers that I have now um, because they tell me off if I go into one of my, um, you know, one of my kind of spitballing sessions of we can build this, and we can build this, and we can build this. Listen, what I've learned is people want a real painful problem solved. And actually, if you solve four other problems with that one problem, it actually convolutes the, the the proposition that you have, and and although you're making their yeah it dilutes the value proposition, doesn't it? Absolutely, and although you you might be making their life easier, they don't really want to know that they have a big pain point in front of them. Mm -hmm. Do you solve the pain point? Yes. Well, just do that then. Um, and I think we we certainly did. We we dipped into too many parts of the process. Um, we've scaled back a lot. Um, you know, we had we had some sort of marketplace. We had a job board. We had so many things going on at once, um, and and I made a ton of mistakes doing it. And I spent a lot of money doing it, by the way. Um, that you know, I would I would recommend that if you know there's a problem that you're solving, strip it down to the point where it's just A and B, just A to B, and that's it. Don't add all the cherries on top, and you know, all the great pieces of functionality go with it solve the issue. And, and, I'm, and I promise you after that, your customers will tell you what you need to do from there. Right. That's interesting. Um, and I think that's what you've tried to do with Fuel. So when I first contacted you, I knew you were working on Offered. You just started with Fuel, um, but you weren't really ready to tell me what it was all about. So I was very surprised that you launched Fuel so close on the heels of Offered. And Fuel is a very exciting value proposition as well. Do you just want to quickly run us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it started, you know, in lockdown around May time. Um, and the idea was that recruitment agencies struggle to get finance for, you know, invoice factoring to get their invoices up front. They don't get paid. 
very quickly. They're always at the bottom of the pile. And I wanted to find a way that I could make the recruitment agency the pure beneficiary of a financing process. I also understood and knew that SMEs had a massive cash flow issue. And it's going to go on for a few few years from now as well. Um, you know, we help small to medium businesses split the cost of their recruitment fees over six months, and we pay the recruitment agencies for them within 24 hours. So recruiters don't wait to get paid anymore. We reduce their debtor days down to zero. Um, we basically solve all of their cash flow issues as well as help them win business and add a product that helps them scale. Um, and it's it's gone. Yeah, really, really well so far. How much does it cost for me as a recruiter to use this service? We we obviously have a margin that we take, but the only thing we we really take from the recruiter on their side is is two percent of of the invoice, uh, and then dependent on on how much you're doing, we have a membership fee. Um, and within that membership fee, we help build you products. We have a marketplace where we introduce you to hiring businesses, um, so you can actually go and win business and scale. Um, so it's it's effectively two percent or two or 1% of your invoice, depending on your membership um, and, and a small monthly fee. That seems reasonable to me because last year I waited over six months for a couple of invoices to get settled. Like twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 invoices. I would have totally taken advantage of that. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, what would you be able to do if you had that money in the bank now? If you, what's the investment ROI that you have? If that 30000 was in your bank six months earlier, could you have made 80,000 with it, but you had to wait those six months until you get it. Um, well, if I put it all into Zoom this year, I could have. <laughs> you would have made millions. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, yeah, it's, it, you know, I think um, Hitachi Capital said 51.2 billion pounds was missed by, uh, by SMEs in the UK on unpaid invoices. Uh, and the average recruiter, apparently, or agency, small agency, spends about four hours a week chasing unpaid invoices. Um, so if you figure out how much you charge for your time, you know, if you charge £100 an hour yep. and you're spending £400 a week and £1,600 a month on just chasing an invoice, it's not worth it. You know, we charge a, a tenth of that um, to be able to actually join the membership and actually start winning business on top of getting paid straight away. So, yeah, we think it's good value. But at the same time, we want it to be good value. We don't want to have a yeah. product that people really want, but then can't afford to have. So what happens if I want to use it? I want to get paid, but my client doesn't. Well, so, I mean, it, re it really depends. Um, if your client doesn't want to split the cost over six months, uh, there's nothing you can do if a client really doesn't want to use the product. Um, you can absorb some margin. If you talk to a client and you know either you absorb some margin or you increase your prices to offer a different product um, the idea of what we do is you know we don't contract people into saying you must put all your invoices through this it's hey this is adding another product into your service and that's something you know i like to speak about is a recruitment service not a recruitment right. product um you're adding another product in a financial product into your recruitment service and this can attract and help other businesses that might not have been able to utilize your expertise to start using you. Right. So there will be some businesses out there that 100% don't want to use this yeah. product. You know, like That's very interesting because it really becomes part of your value proposition as a recruiter, especially as you say, if you're working with these smaller enterprises, when you can say, look, by the way, if you do choose to work with us, we can split the cost of these placements over six months. And you make that part yeah. of your actual sales pitch. 
Absolutely. And it's, it's, you see it's, how fast I catch on? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here you go. Sell it. Um, I got my head around it. It's, it, it is, it, it is easy. It's, it's supposed to be easy because it's supposed to be something that you genuinely, you know, you, you live, you feel, you dread. Um, and so it's very easy to kind of catch on to it when, when you felt it and lived through that. Yeah. But if, if you have a value proposition where you just give people options, generally speaking, that, that helps you win business. If you say to somebody, 20%, that's it. And they go, we only, oh, we don't, you know, we can only pay this fee and that's 18%. Well, are you going to go down to 18% or are you going to lose that business? Now, there is a line that we both, you know, we spoke about it earlier. Don't drop your pants and, um, and you know, go too low, but don't miss out on business. Give them options. What if you could do this tr- you know, traditional way, just pay us in one lump sum? Oh, we can't really do that. Fine. Well, listen, we've got another product that um, we can help you split the cost over six months. Oh, yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. Brilliant. There we go. And if you're hiring sales teams, it's even better because you actually probably get an ROI on that salesperson before you've even finished paying right. for the fee. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, I'm obviously passionate about the product, but we've had over 1,100 agencies inquire about the product so far. Uh, back to your LinkedIn profile again. Back, back to, and <laughs> yeah, by the way, all from LinkedIn. All from LinkedIn. Um, all from LinkedIn. Listen, folks, until, LinkedIn works. Until, LinkedIn does work. It's free. I need um, to get someone to teach me how to use LinkedIn properly because I publish these videos about my podcast, but my engagement is pretty, is pretty low on those. Um, and I think I've been told by a couple of people to say, don't broadcast on LinkedIn, use it as an engagement tool. And I, I need to get yeah, way I, better at that. I think social media is a funny one because um, – what people don't realize about social media is it's a conversation. Uh, and a lot of people, when they post, they're posting as if they're announcing something. Right. And That's if me. you're in a room and you announce something, uh, tell me how many people in that room speak back to you. Zero. It just doesn't happen. Right. So um, if you're at a conference and you, you turn around to everybody and you say, right, I'm going to the bar to get a drink. Yeah, they might, no, they might follow you, uh, okay. uh, but, but yeah, but no one, no one's going to go, why are you going to have a drink? Right. Oh, it's been a hard, you know, no one, no one engages with you in a conversation. Whereas what you need to say media, is who wants me to get them a drink? Exactly. And that's what, that's what you were just saying. The word engagement is no one's engaging because you're broadcasting. Yeah. So you're not, you're not offering someone to come back to you and, and speak to you. Whereas, you know, what I do is invite people to join in. Um, it's a conversation. Yeah. It's a two-way thing. And if, if I'm just speaking at somebody, which in normal life, I tend to do quite a lot probably, but if I'm just speaking at somebody, they won't, they won't speak to me and engage with me and, and, and we won't build that relationship. And that's, that's how, that's how LinkedIn works best is, is create a conversation. Then they engage, then build a relationship. Fantastic. Jamie, this has been a very interesting conversation. We always knew it would be. It's been great. And uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. Um, how do people reach you? Um, you can reach me on uh, email, jamie at paywithfuel.io. Um, uh, if you're interested in Offered, it's jamie at getoffered.io. Um, you can reach me on LinkedIn. I am, like I said, I speak to everybody. Um, I'm the most open person. So add me. Um, send a message while you're adding me. If you want to ask a few questions or tell me I'm rubbish, you hate my content, um, happy to discuss that too. Um, so, so you can reach me with any way. Spell your last name. Beaumont. So B-E-A-U-M-O-N-T. Jamie Beaumont. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Recruiting Trailblazers podcast with me, Marcus. And uh, mate, we're going to carry on talking because I love what you're doing. 
And uh, one of these days I might even twist your arm and make you bring fuel over to the US. So um, it's uh, it's a mission of mine to get it over to the US. So um, if if anyone listening in the US thinks that this is a problem for them, please reach out to me. It'd be great to hear. Love it. Jamie Beaumont, thank you very much, mate. And I'll talk to you soon. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers.